So the uh, theme for the uh, Sunday afternoon talk this week is On Being Right. And I definitely was got off on the wrong foot, um, forgetting to switch on the microphone. Minor detail. <laughs> um, but I hope that I'll be able to say a few words that will in some way be helpful uh, to all of you. Uh, it's probably about a year since I sat up here at the front of the temple, and uh, I have to say it's a little bit intimidating, even though there's not an enormous number of people here, um, but it's very different from the little room in the retreat center where I normally do my Zooming from, which is uh, just me and, me and my iPad. <laughs> so... Um, I actually uh, suggested this theme uh, like a, a month or two before the, the Vasa begins. Uh, Ajahn Amaru invites us each to come up with a number of suggested topics for the Sunday talks. And out of a hundred or so topics, he chooses eight or ten or twelve. And then we have a chance to, uh, to volunteer to give a talk on one of these themes. And I was interested that this topic on being right, which was one of the ones I thought of, uh, was on the list. So I thought, well, let's let's give it a go. Um, it's a very simple theme in some ways, and yet for me it feels like a really important topic um, because we can get into so much trouble from uh, thinking that we're right, uh, being right, and everybody else wrong. And uh, it can cause enormous amounts of division, uh, confusion, upset, um, fear, agitation. All kinds of unwholesome states can arise uh, just because one person thinks they're right. And uh, so I was, I, was, I was interested in this. And particularly in community, you can get into disputes, disagreements about things. Um, and... Uh, just because one person is stuck in the view that they're right. Uh, so I've had the good fortune to have about three weeks of being on retreat, being on my own uh, quietly in, in a kuti in the far corner of the, of the monastery here, just a big, a big oak tree and a number of other trees and the squirrels and the birds, the deer, uh, for company. And knowing that I was going to be giving this talk, of course, many ideas came into my head um, about what I might talk about and how I might go about presenting the material. And um, now that I'm sitting up here, I'm thinking, oh, hmm. What shall I talk about? What shall I say? Um, I suppose the thing that occurred to me to talk about first was an experience I had uh, quite a number of years ago when I was in America. Um, I'd been going to invited to go and give some teachings there. And after the retreat, uh, the people who had invited me uh, took me to a restaurant rather a fancy place. It was in the afternoon, so I knew it wasn't going to be a meal, but there was, there was a menu and things that we can choose. And I thought, well, maybe I'll have a cup of tea. And from one point of view, this was a terrible mistake. 
And from another point of view, it was very important learning because um, having grown up in Britain, I have a particular idea of what a cup of tea is and how you make a cup of tea. And it's actually quite important <laughs> how you make a cup of tea. And anyway, I was in this restaurant. I'd asked for a cup of tea. It was quite expensive, I remember. I mean, I didn't, didn't really know the worth, value of things, but it was a high number, something like 60. So I don't know if it was six, probably not $60, but anyway, I think it was 60-something. Seemed like a lot, but anyway, I thought, well, it's, it was one of the less, the more modest things on the menu. So, anyway, they came very, very beautifully presented tray um, with a white cup and a saucer and um, a tea bag uh, in, its, in its package. I think it said English breakfast tea on the side and then um, a small jug of, of hot water. And I think it had a little bit of steam coming off it, but that was, that was it. And so I thought, oh... Fortunately, I'd been practicing for a number of years, so I knew better than to get cross or anything like that. I was just surprised because um, for, for British people, the way you make a cup of tea is that you warm the cup or you warm the pot first and you use boiling water, you know, actually boiling, not just water that's... Anyway, I could go on about this. <laughs> But clearly, I had a very different idea about what the right way to make a cup of tea was. In the restaurant, I'm sure they were quite sure that they were doing it in absolutely the right way. And it was certainly very beautifully presented. Uh, but it was a very different sort of right way from my right way. There was another experience very shortly after I arrived at Chithurst Monastery. And I was in the kitchen uh, with um, another, I think I must have been a layperson then, a laywoman. And there was another laywoman there who happened to be French. And um, I was helping to prepare the meal and I was cutting up the carrots in the way that, the right way to cut carrots. And it wasn't very long before she noticed what I was doing and was completely outraged because everybody knows that you cut carrots this way. And she showed me how I should cut the carrots. She was macrobiotic as well, so I think that had added another dimension of, of rightness. So I was, again, I was surprised, a little bit taken aback, a little bit shocked, actually. I think I was probably slightly more shocked than the American experience. Um, but there was quite a strong emotional intensity there. So another, another experience of two people being right, but it was a different right. And I'm sure everybody um, here has similar experiences of situations where they've been quite sure they were right and that um, the other person or other people were wrong. That's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? that there are, there are different rights. I remember one time Ajahn Munindo saying this very, very sensible thing, at least it struck me as being really, really helpful. We're talking about right view, and he said, well, one aspect of right view is recognizing that, in fact, there are, there are many different views. <laughs> and I thought, ah, oh, okay, so there's no one right view. There could be different, different views, depending on our point of view, depending on our background on our conditioning, our nationality. Within our nuns community here, we have no, we have two Japanese sisters, Anagari Kars, but otherwise there are no two people with the same nationality and very few with the same language. And there's me and uh, an American nun who speak, whose native language is a, a sort of English. And uh, so, of course, there are times when we have misunderstandings. We think we're right and other people think we're wrong.
in one way, it's a small matter. You know, what does it matter who's right? Why does it matter who's right? And this is a very important question. You know, what does it matter? <laughs> yeah. what, which is the right way of doing things? You know, why do we, why do we mind so much? Uh, what is it that gives these things a particular emotional intensity? Uh, some greater, some lesser. You know, what, what, what's that about? You know, why is it that we can sometimes get to the point of almost coming to blows because of somebody challenging a statement we've made or an assumption we've made? Why can we get so enraged about it? What's that about? I used to get very confused when I was a teenager in my early 20s. And... Um, I don't know nowadays because I'm so far away from that time and that generation. But when I was when I was a teenager in my twenties, we were all rather idealistic. It was kind of like the peace, peace, love, and brown brown rice generation. Somebody <laughs> described it, the hippie the hippie culture, and everybody was into peace. And um, there was a lot about. Uh, banning the bomb, because nuclear uh, bombs were just being, had just been, were just being created and developed, and um, so there would, there would be peace walks and people carrying banners for peace. And uh, I was always very confused about this, because I, you know, in, in some way, I, I really, really Agreed, you know, I, you know that the idea of, you know, having some kind of device that could kill or maim hundreds of people all in one go, you know, that seemed absolutely horrific. You know, how could, how could anybody justify that? How could anybody support that? And yet, I didn't really feel very inclined to participate in these. Demonstrations. I didn't feel drawn to these people who were talking about these things. And uh, it didn't take long for me to kind of actually realize what the problem was. And the problem was that actually, um, although these people were saying very, very good things and things that I could completely agree with, uh, they weren't themselves very, very peaceful. In fact, they were quite angry, some of them. I've heard stories about people um, demonstrating against vivisection, um, using animals for experiments, which again is you know, a horrible idea. But people who feel so strongly about it that they're willing to go and harm the people who are doing this. So you think, well, that, that, doesn't, that, doesn't feel, that doesn't feel right. But these people are so sure that they're right, that they'll do anything, you know, even things that are quite cruel and harmful, as a way of um, making their case. They don't see that actually they're um, harming their case. It, it doesn't, doesn't prove anything. It just makes people frightened. Um, Ajahn Chah has a phrase that you've probably heard Ajahn Amaru say very many times, or Ajahn Sumedho, you know, true but not right, right but not true. There's a Thai expression which I'm afraid I don't know. But I've always found this very helpful. Um, and particularly in community where, you know, when we live in a monastic community where you know, the monks and nuns have, have given up a lot to to live in this way. Um, so many of the usual ways that we have of expressing ourselves um, just aren't there. We can't 
I was going to say we can't wear fancy clothes, but of course we are wearing fancy clothes. <laughs> we, we can't stand out in any way, and of course we do stand out in the society, but in the monastery, you know, we all wear the same things. We all have the same hairstyle. None of us wears any makeup, I don't think. Um, so, you know, we, we're all the same. We're expected to conform. You know, we walk in line, we sit in a certain place, we receive our food in a certain order. You know, this is part of our life. And what can be very shocking, I think, for people when they first come to the monastery, when they first become nuns and monks particularly, it's probably the same for lay people to a slightly lesser degree, slightly less intense, but probably that's it's there for them also. But certainly for monks and nuns, we can get very, very fired up about small details, small details of our, of our monastic training, of our rule. And this is our vasa time, our time for looking particularly at our monastic discipline and uh, all kinds of rules and details and exceptions and exceptions of exceptions and you know, different, different categories of transgression and so on. It can get very, very technical, very complicated. And we can become very fired up about it. And so, um, and very, very, very judgmental of each other, very critical of each other. You know, and you can end up sort of saying things like, he shouldn't do that, or she shouldn't do that. And I think that's the sort of situation where Lumpur Cha would say, well, true but not right, right but not true. Because um, it's a matter of where we're coming from, the energy behind it, the intention. I'm interested that in um, Buddhist teachings, uh, there's not so much emphasis on right and wrong, or good and bad, or evil and good. But words that are used more frequently are like wholesome and un unwholesome, skillful and unskillful which I find um, more helpful um, because it really points us back to the heart and puts us, puts us in touch with our intention and attunes us, helps us to attune to recognizing the results of what we do. Because you know, certainly there are less skillful things, less skillful intentions uh, that bring about a less fortunate, a less happy result. This is, this, is, this, is, this is what happens. This wonderful verse in the Dhammapada, I'm often quoting this, like if you act or speak with, a, with an impure mind, with a mind that is filled with greed, hatred or delusion, then unhappiness will, will follow you like the track follows the wheel of the cart that, of the ox of the hoof, <laughs> the ox that draws it, something like that. So basically, you know, if you act or speak from a place of anger or ill will or out of greed, desire, um, or fear or confusion, then, you know, if that's the, the motivating energy, then the result is likely to be uh, less than um, uh, desirable, less less than um, uh, beneficial, either for oneself or for others. Whereas, if you act or speak with a mind of of kindness, of compassion, of generosity, these kind of clarity, these kind of wholesome intentions, then. Uh, happiness follows us, like our never-departing shadow. Uh, so, you know, where's the right and wrong in that? Well, if we maybe replace right with, with wholesome or skillful, um, that might be, that can be helpful.
I'm always interested when, um, you know, I'm trying to make a decision about something because we so desperately want to do the right thing, or I, there are certain things, I, I so desperately want to do the right thing. And um, I can really suffer a lot about that. You know, which is the right thing? Shall I do this or shall I do that? Uh, this fear of getting it wrong. And there is a kind of fear that certainly has its place. Like in, in Buddhism, we talk about hiriotapa. Uh, hiri being the, um, I can never remember which is which, but one is the fear of blame, fear of wrongdoing, yeah, bla fear of blame, not wanting to, having a sense of concern about people who we respect, about how they would uh, uh, regard what it is that we've done or said. You know, would, would, they, would they feel that that was a good thing we'd done or would they feel that that was a foolish or unskillful action of speech or mind? So it's kind of fear or, or like a wise concern. You could, you could think of that, it in that way. So there is a place for that. And you know, for all of us who are you know, training in this way, you know, who are interested in living more peacefully and happily with ourselves and each other, you know, following the Buddhist teachings, then this is a very, a very appropriate concern. Um, it's not necessarily a neurotic concern, it's more just a sort of, well, you know, it's like having a, a good friend beside us. Uh, like, what would Ajahn Chah say if he could see me now? <laughs> I remember one time having this thought, I was on retreat, and uh, I was sitting in my kuti in the forest at Chidhurst, and I was feeling pretty wretched. Uh, my meditation practice wasn't at all what I thought it should be. Struggling a lot with uh, either feeling sleepy, falling asleep, or just a lot of you know quite miserable mind states and feeling a bit hopeless and sort of maybe maybe I should just disrobe and give up hopeless case, never be any good kind of thoughts. And feeling quite quite desperate actually, and I just caught sight of photograph that I had of Ajahn Chah in the shrine. And I looked at him, looked at this photograph, and I thought, gosh, I wonder what Ajahn Chah would say if he could look into my mind, see the state I'm in. And the first thought I had was, he'd, he'd think I was a hopeless case. <laughs> he'd agree. And the second thought I had was, he'd probably just laugh. Uh, I think I, my sense is he would respond with kindness because I'd managed to create enormous suffering for myself, believing that I was right, that my assessment of my practice was right, and that I was a hopeless case and I would never be any good, rather than being able to stay in the, in the don't-know mind. Don't know. This is how it feels right now. Um, doesn't feel very good, but don't know. And then realizing that, well, I think I'm right that it's hopeless, that it's no good, but maybe it's better just to stay in the don't know, the don't know mind. And I often say this to people when they come and they talk to me about their practice. Uh, they say, well, who knows? Maybe what's happening is that actually you're, you're developing you know, a chance to develop a lot of patience. And maybe you're developing, you know, just through being able to stay with these difficult, painful, unpleasant, un difficult situations, different difficult conditions, maybe there's an enormous amount of patience being cultivated. Patience, kindness. You know, kindness towards oneself, kindness towards those around us. You know, these, these, are very, these are very good qualities, these are the barometers. And so that I began to think of my practice rather than 
judging it too harshly according to how much samadhi I had or you know whether I was experiencing jhana or bliss or you know, having a lot of peaceful states, being able to sit for long periods of time, totally clear and bright, blissed out, and so I could have the sense of my practice is really good, I'm I'm on the right track. Instead of, you know, even trying to to have a practice that looked like that, to think more just, well, you know, I'm still here. Maybe I can just develop a little bit more patience, a little bit more kindness, a little bit more humility. You know, just being willing to, to keep going. Now, John Cha would talk about the earthworm practice. You know, just keep going. You know, what can you know right now? Just this moment. I'm interested in um, in the kind of sense of, I mean, I've already talked a little bit about this sense of righteousness, righteous indignation, you know, people doing things that seem to be inappropriate or harmful, and how angry and upset we can become about that. Um, and... It's something I've grown to be very wary of in my own practice. You can actually almost hear hear it coming along. And then you can listen internally. You can hear yourself uh, judging, criticizing um, somebody. And uh, it happens on a national scale. I mean, we can all get... And I haven't actually seen very much news because of being on retreat, but um, we can certainly you know, look at the news or hear the news, and there's almost always something to get upset about, to get angry about, if we choose to do so. Um, things, you know, appalling things happening in the world that, that shouldn't happen. You know, people shouldn't do those things to each other. And they do. Living in community, you know, things can happen. And people maybe don't treat us the way they think we should be treated. And we can be very, we can get very righteous about that. Uh, or they don't treat each other the way that we think, you know, we think they should. You know, I, I can get very upset when, when, when people are, are not respectful or polite or kind to each other. I, I don't like to see that. And I can, <laughs> yeah, I can, if I'm not careful, you know, become quite uh, righteous about that. But I've learned how to regard this with great, um, to see that kind of energy. It's like an energy of anger. And to learn to recognize it. You know, I'm right. They shouldn't do that. Um, to be able to regard that with a very strong sense of, of caution. And not necessarily that I'm wrong. You know, it, it, it may be, you know, sometimes in these situations it is. It is right that people shouldn't do those things. They shouldn't treat each other in that way. Um, they should follow our instructions. You know, you say, please shut the door quietly, and they forget, and they, the next time the door bangs, you say, I told them. Didn't they understand it? Didn't they hear? There's righteous indignation. So learning how to recognize that, and to see that this is a very um, potent energy. I mean, I'm sure all of us have had experiences of being... Um, subjected to somebody's righteous indignation. I certainly have an incredible experience some years ago when somebody yelled at me at great length 
told me off about something. And I have to say it's not particularly pleasant <laughs> being yelled at, being um, criticized, being judged, being blamed. Um, and I think for some people it can be absolutely devastating. You know, they can be really, you know, totally crushed uh, when they have such an experience. You know, even though the person who's doing it is quite sure that they're right, it's the anger behind it, the delivery, that is not right. You know, coming from a place of anger, a place of vindictiveness, judgment, criticism of a person is, is not, it's not helpful. So how can we, how can we be right and how can we let people know about things that they're doing that are maybe unhelpful um, in a way that's not going to uh, cause, cause them harm, you know, be a, a kind of major trauma. <clears throat> and what I always suggest is, as far as possible, just waiting until you're not upset anymore. You know, letting, letting the righteous indignation pass. You know, just leave it be, leave it to one side. And then if we really care about the person, you know, if we really want to help them um, to understand uh, how their behavior is affecting others, then you know, choose words that are kind. You say, you know, would you mind if I just you know, pointed something out? You know, when you do that, this happens. It's not helpful. So maybe you could find another way of responding to whatever the situation might be. And I'm sure that that would have a much better result. So it's all right to be right. <laughs> but it's a question of how, how that's expressed in in our interactions with one, with one another, you know, how we relate to the sense of being right. You know, do we make it into like a personal attainment? Uh, I was thinking about sometimes in families you have situations where the older one is always right and the younger one has to get used to their older brother or older sister always being right. That's a horrible feeling. You know, they're always right. And uh, or the feeling of always needing to be right. You know, how is it to be wrong? What does that feel like? There's a story I often tell about one of our big festival days here, a very long time ago. It must be, I don't know, maybe 25 years ago. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a public situation, Katina or something, a festival. It must have been in the sala. And Ajahn Sumedha was sitting in the middle and you know, on, a, on a kind of raised seat and nuns on one side, monks on another side and people making offerings. And so somebody had made some offerings and one of the sisters moved the offering to one side. And Ajahn Sumedho ticked her off about it, told her she'd done the wrong thing. And what was really impressive to me was the fact that how she took it. She said, well, I thought I was doing the right thing, and it turned out to be the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, she was just that, that kind of evenness that, that could admit to having made a mistake. Okay, it wasn't the right thing. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. And just apologize. That's okay. You know, all of us make mistakes. And the, there are verses in the Dhammapada, again, that, where I think the Buddha said, you know, that there's never, never been anyone who's never, who's never ever been blamed or criticized. You know, we all, we all have to experience blame or criticism in our, in our lives. And he certainly did. You know, he, he was 
often quite heavily criticized by people when, when things happened that they didn't like. Ajahn Chah was often criticized. Ajahn Sumedha gets criticized. I mean, everybody gets criticized. So one of the things that I think is a really important thing for us to, to practice with, to develop, is just learning how to um, not appreciate or learning how to accept, how to stay present. That's the word. How to stay present with blame, you know, being criticized. How to, how to stay present with when we're right, we do something well, praise. Can we stay present with that? And I know uh, many people can. It's something that, that I, I can find quite difficult. You, know, say, you find some kind of way to say, oh, well, it wasn't very much, oh, well. Uh, yeah, well, I, it could have been better, or uh, and just to be able to just you know that's just because I'm I'm British. I think British people tend to find it, and this is an ex, uh, a gross generalization, but I think for some British people it can be difficult to receive praise. You know, you get all bashful. <laughs> um, so learning how to how to be present with with being right, you know, having done something really well and being right, can I stay present with that? So learning how to do that. And can we learn how to stay present with when we've done something wrong, when we've made a mistake? Maybe we thought we were doing the right thing, we were, we were right, and it turned out we weren't right. Can we stay present then, if someone blames us? Of course, the trouble starts if they blame us and say we've done it wrong, and we think we've done it right. Then you can really get into a, a tiff. <laughs> They say, you did it wrong, and I said, no, I did it right. And, um, and there are stories in our monastic training about groups of monks who got into terrible, terrible, terrible um, arguments. <clears throat> and I don't think it happened frequently, but certainly there's one classic story about the, um, which I think has been spoken about on one of these talks before, where... Um, they got into a dispute about a very minor training rule. And uh, you know, two groups, two factions, quarreling, arguing, criticizing, uh, was described as wounding each other with verbal daggers. <laughs> you know, well, that's like, you know, when people say really mean things, hurt each other. Um, and this was happening, and the Buddha you know, tried to uh, encourage them to, to um, make it up. You know, gave each side a, an opportunity to, to do the right thing, either to apologize or uh, confess the offense or to forgive. And um, they weren't having it. They were so fixed into their entrenched views about what had happened that they wanted to carry on. And it was only when the... Um, when the Buddha left and the lay people stopped feeding them, <laughs> stopped offering food because they were so disappointed that the Buddha had left, then they started thinking about, oh dear, well, we better make it up. We better, we better um, uh, repair this. We better mend this split that's happened. So it can get very, very serious, you know, people going to war over you know, minor uh, misunderstandings, or even major misunderstandings. There's no excuse for that kind of behavior. Um, so can we learn how to, how to be wrong, how to accept blame? Can we do that graciously, you know, humbly, um, without feeling diminished? And when we're you know, when we train ourselves to offer each other feedback, which is one of the quite important trainings for us in monastic life, because, um, you know, we're all of us learning uh, how to be monks and nuns and uh, how to do things, and there's a lot of different things we have to learn. And so, you know, sometimes we need some feedback. We need to be told, oh, sister, don't do it like that. You do it like this. This looks much more beautiful. Um, or, sister, you really shouldn't wear your robe like that. You know, do it like this. So what we're encouraged is when we're giving this kind of feedback is rather than blaming the person, 
or criticizing the person is more to give feedback about the action or the speech or the way of doing something. You know, this is the way to do it. So you do it, you, you maintain a sense of respect and kindness towards the person that you're speaking to. You know, not with a view to humiliate them, you know, to blame them or judge them or criticize them, but more, you know, well, that, that, you, know, you, you could have done that better, couldn't you? That would have been, that would have, would have been nicer if you'd done it like that. Or maybe, you know, if you've made a mistake, um, just to acknowledge, okay, yes, I realize that that, that wasn't such a, a good thing to do. Uh, the result isn't, isn't so good. Um, so this is an area I'm, I'm quite interested in because I, I do find it very difficult, <laughs> I, you know, to, to, to offer feedback to. Um, but I do see, having, having received feedback, I remember one time, Early, early on, one of the monks gave me some feedback about something. I really can't remember what the feedback was about, but there was something I'd done that wasn't appropriate or you know, against a rule of some sort. And, but I remember just the feeling behind it. And honestly, it was like being given a gift. You know, it was just like, you know, something very precious, showing me something that I hadn't seen. So it wasn't, I'm right and you're wrong. You know, I'm, I'm the one who's going to put you right, tell you how to do it. But it was more, oh, sister, I, I don't know if you realize that, you know, usually we do it like that. Or I don't know if you realize that that's not such an appropriate thing to do. So learn, learning how to do that in a beautiful way, in a way that the other person can receive, uh, like a gift. Not with a lot of ego involvement and ego attachment. I'm right. You know, we can use being right as a way of, of building ourselves up, building up a sense of self-identity. One of the things we've been looking at over the last while is, is like dependent origination and the sort of how how the whole uh, suffering arises and the sense of self, you know, how we get reborn into being somebody. You know, and if we, we can identify with, with our successes, our, our being right, identify with a position of, I'm the one who's right, I'm the one who's always right. Or we can think, I could think, well, I'm a senior nun, I always have to be right, I'm right. <laughs> and you can't tell me anything, but I can tell you. <laughs> you know, because I'm right, I know, I'm right. And I can use this in a very horrible way. Uh, to humiliate people, to intimidate people, and to build up a, a very unhelpful identity. And all of us, you know, whether the monks, the nuns, the lay people, lay people here, lay people at home, we're all trying to diminish that sense of uh, ego identity, to let go of the sense of self. One of the wonderful things about righteous indignation, actually, is that it gives us a chance to really see the sense of self. You know, I think for some of us, when we're starting practice, this is one of the most difficult things to um, really uh, get some understanding of. You know, we, we, when the Buddha talked about the three characteristics, you know, anicca, things are changing, Dukkha, they're unsatisfactory because they're changing, they're not stable, there's nothing stable except for that triple gem, which is our refuge. That's, that's certainly stable, but nothing, nothing in the world of conditions is, is stable. You know, everything is continuously changing. You know, we can get that, but the um, anatta, not-self, uh, can be very, very tricky one to understand. And uh, what I've found helpful is to actually see that, you know, it's not that there's no self, but that the self is something that we create. It's like a created phenomenon. It's, it's, it's something that um, the mind creates, this sense of me. And over our, you know, growing up, it, it evolves. We have a sense of I'm this person and... I'm like this, and he's like that, and she's like that, and I'm a separate person, there's another person over there. 
you know, we can, we, um, this, is, this is something that happens. But then we need to begin to understand that and to let that go. And one of the ways of, of recognizing it is when we're really fired up about something, when we have a cause. Because then you can really feel, particularly if somebody has a different idea about something, you can really feel this thing sort of arising up inside you, um, this kind of energy of, of the self. Um, that can be way out of proportion uh, to the particular cause that we're um, uh, supporting. I find this interesting. You know, sometimes <laughs> there was a time, one time, having this terrific argument with one of the sisters, and I was saying this, and then she was coming back with that, and then we each each adding on to the argument, to the discussion. Um, and I really can't remember what it was about, but it was very small. And then suddenly, when it was just, we were just about to burst, suddenly thinking, Chandasiri, you don't really care about this. It doesn't matter that much. <sighs> and just letting it go. And such a sense of peacefulness. Rather than this huge inflated thing that was in conflict with another huge inflated thing. So I just stopped. I stopped arguing. I think the other person was a bit surprised. <laughs> Suddenly, there was nothing, nothing to, nothing to, um, to beat against. Nothing to, to, to uh, nothing there to challenge. Uh, so this, this is something that we can notice when we, we can play around with this a little bit. This sense of, of righteous indignation, because it's such a, uh, it's kind of obvious, you know, when it arises. Uh, so I think one of the one of the most important things I would like to encourage uh, is to really uh, uh, attune uh, to our own minds. Uh, I had actually one of the ideas I'd had when I was thinking about this talk was to talk about the eightfold path, which is all about right, right this, right that, right the other. But right mindfulness and right intention, I think, are particularly interesting in relation to this topic because, um, you know, when we're mindful, when we're aware and uh, attend to what's going on in the mind, notice the kind of thoughts we're having. So it's not that we should never have, you know, thoughts of judgment or criticism or thoughts of feeling superior because we're right about something. You know, these, these, these things are going to arise you know, until we're perfectly enlightened and, you know, don't have thoughts like that don't arise. You know, for all of us, they arise. You know, there'll be certain situations where we find ourselves feeling right or moved by some particular thing that's happening around us. Uh, this, is, this is normal. But rather than judging ourselves for feeling right or uh, feeling upset or righteous about something, just to... To, to, to be aware of it, to establish presence, mindfulness with it, to be interested in it. Can we really just be interested rather than thinking, oh, I shouldn't have this thought. I shouldn't feel like that. I shouldn't be judgmental. Or I should be judgmental. I am right. So taking an interest, being curious about it, and being rather wary, rather cautious, because as I said, people can go to war. People can create all kinds of horrible suffering uh, for each other, for other people, and for ourselves. I mean, if you blow up at somebody because of being right about something, how does that feel? You think, well, well, I was right. I was right. At least I think I was right. And then maybe you discover you weren't. You've made a mistake. Then you feel really foolish. So my encouragement would be to learn how to recognize that. I talk about staying in touch. Keep in touch. And we keep in touch with each other. You know, we telephone each other, chat to each other. But keep in touch with yourself. In a friendly way, in a kind way. Not judging not blaming, not criticizing, but more, 
Oh, Chandasiri, you could have done that better. Oh, Chandasiri, that 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 um, yeah, that wasn't very good. You know. Or oh, yeah, you did that quite well. So just learning how to how to um, listen to the way that you relate to yourself, how you think, and come right down into the heart. Learning how to be present with yourself. Learning how to be present with each other. So right intention, you're learning how to, how to think in skillful ways, rather than uh, keeping a heart of, of goodwill, a heart of kindness. So not that we should uh, um, kind of turn a blind eye to things that aren't very good either, you know, within our own hearts and minds or around us, um, but rather than dwelling on them with a sense of righteousness or allowing that sense of righteousness to um, flare up into uh, something that can cause a lot of harm, like um, learning how to, to transform that uh, into something that can really bring benefit. So right view, recognizing that there are many different views about everything. Um, and if there's suffering, to recognize this is suffering. Why am I suffering? I'm suffering because of attachment to some kind of a desire. Attachment to a view. Desire to become, to, to be, to have a position about something. So we learn how to let go, let go of that position, that sense of being right. If I am right about something, learning how to just state it. You know, I know this is the case. It's five to three. I can see my clock's here. Five to three British UK time. Um, be different time somewhere else. And maybe on somebody else's clock, they say, no, I've got seven to three. I say, no, it's five to three. I've got seven to three. It's five to three. So we, who's right? Does it matter? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. So I seem to have said quite a lot of things this afternoon, and um, I hope that some of what I've said has been helpful. And um, the um, maybe I'll, I'll end the formal talk now, and then we can have time for a few questions, if there are any questions. So I offer this consideration this evening, this afternoon. So there were no 
questions sent in by one o'clock or even by two o'clock. <laughs> so um, we have a chance to see if anybody here in the temple would like to ask a question. There's a microphone if you have a question. If you feel too shy to ask a question, you can write, write it down, um, except that we don't have any paper or pencils. <laughs> but if anything, anything that I've said seems puzzling, to you, or if you have any other uh, queries about the topic, um, I'd be very happy to have a go at uh, answering them. And I have to say, it doesn't have to be a good question. We'll sit quietly for a few moments, and if anything arises, then you're very welcome to ask. Otherwise, we can just end. Or is there anything you'd like me to say a bit more about? You, you have one, Rosie? Yeah, do you want to take the microphone? Hi, um, so my question was, um, more about dealing with other people's views kind of imposing on you um, and if you feel that someone's imposing something on you but they're also very dismissive um, a kind of ways of dealing with that personally I guess because it feels like it's not going to be helpful to kind of respond to them but what they're saying feels unkind. Um, so I guess I'm interested in the question of kind of personally how you relate to that in the, that situation where there's something that doesn't feel right, but it doesn't feel helpful to kind of respond. Okay. I'm just going to kind of repeat it back to make sure I've understood how to, how to respond if somebody else is um, telling you something that they, they feel they're right about and they want to tell you about it and how an appropriate way to respond to that. Yeah, and it feels like they're quite kind of dismissive, so they might not necessarily receive a, a kind of... Not appreciate your response. A response in, in, in that way. Um, but then yeah. at the same time, it kind of feels a bit unkind um, in what, you know, what they're expressing. So to me, it, it, it feels like... I feel the sense of kind of wanting to do something because it mm. feels unkind, but not really knowing how to go about that. Unkind to you or unkind to other people? Other people. Unkind. Okay, so somebody's like a, somebody gossiping and telling you some 
unpleasant things about somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that can happen a lot, like in community particularly. When you're living with a group of people and somebody comes and tells you something about something that somebody's done or something they've heard about somebody and uh, really you, you'd rather not know. <laughs> um, so, well, it depends on all kinds of things. It depends on the relationship uh, you have with the person who's telling you. It depends on the situation, like the time and the place. You know, how much how much space there is, how much time there is. Um, and so these are things that need to be, well, a, a kind of part of, part of the uh, part of the configuration. Um, so it may be like if it's a very high pressure situation, say, I don't know, say that you're working to prepare the meal and somebody's chopping vegetables beside you and, you know, just this kind of chat going on and you're not very happy with it, but, you know, you don't want to get into a discussion or an argument at that point. Then saying something like, well, you know, maybe we could talk about this later um, would be one one way of responding. Um, What I do sometimes is say, well, you know, because, you know, obviously I, I get to know the people I'm living with very, very well. And sometimes what, I, what you can say is something like, well, I really don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> you know, just not, not in an angry way, um, not in a way that's in any way kind of wanting to humiliate them or reject them or make them feel foolish, but more, more just stating your own situation, your own truth, if you like. I don't want to talk about that right now. Um, and I think if you can say it um, without any like emotional investment, you know, and, and just in a, in a very calm, straightforward way, often they can hear it. It's interesting. You know, if you're angry um, and want them to shut up, <laughs> which can be the case, then they tend to carry on. But if you can be establish mindfulness, establish presence with the kind of uncomfortable feeling that you have and maybe the sense of aversion about the energy that's happening and just keep letting go, keep letting go, keep relaxing, keep breathing and just, you know, from a, from a calm place, just say, I don't want to talk about that right now. And, you know, if they do want to kind of raise it later on, then, you know, make a time and, you know, hear what they have to say. But often it's just a matter of, they want somebody to listen to to what, what they have to say about this person. And, it, you know, whether it's you or somebody else doesn't, doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, that would be one, one way of responding, I think. I think the more present you can be in these situations, the better. Um, which can be very difficult because sometimes that kind of energy is, is can be really unpleasant. You know, sort of that sort of gossipy, slandery kind of stuff, uh, making somebody else look bad. Um, unless you kind of want to join in with it. <laughs> but obviously you don't, which is very skillful just to say, actually, no, I'm, I'm not going to go there. And that's, you, you're being like the best kind of kalyanamita, spiritual friend, which is more like a mirror. You know, so when you can, when you can respond from that place of, of inner balance, inner calm, uh, rather than feeling kind of like a victim, you know, sort of someone talking at you, just establishing that, that sense of place of presence, of mindfulness, um, then, then you're like, you're like a mirror. You know, so you're not, judging them or blaming them. Even though you might have little thoughts arising, you don't, you don't buy into those. You just, you know, there's just a sense of, of presence and um, you, you're uh, being a mirror for the action uh, rather than um, uh, the person themselves. You know, they're somebody, you know, they're like, they're like a, 
somebody who's practicing alongside you, so it's another practitioner, so you're uh, like being the best kind of friend. So that's what I would say in response to that. Yeah, good. The other thing you can say, of course, is, well, are you sure? <laughs> you know, somebody said, you know, I've heard this, 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 this. You know, she did that, he did that, you know, and so on. You say, well, you know, are you sure about that? Or, or how do you know? And uh, sort of challenge them in that way. But if you really don't want to, to hear it, to, to, to involve, to engage in that kind of discussion, it's better just to say, well, I, I don't want to talk about that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Well, maybe maybe it's time to, to end. And uh, to wish wish you all all the very very best in your lives and practice. And uh, I'm not sure what the topic is for next week or who will be giving the talk, but there'll there'll certainly be a talk. Somebody will be sitting here, um, offering some reflections. And I think you can look on the Amarawati website. It certainly will have information about the um, the teachings being offered. Um, so uh, we can we can close the afternoon. Thank you.